Welcome to All His Movies, the Shia LaBeouf Podcast. This is episode 5, Lawless, from 2012. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And I'd seen this movie once a couple years ago, I think it was on HBO or something. I remember not liking it, but this time around I liked it a lot more. And I'm not sure what I didn't like about it the first time, but had you seen this before, or is this the first time you saw it? This is the first time I've seen this movie, and it's nothing like what I was expecting, actually. Uh, totally surpassed my expectations, and I ended up quite enjoying this. What were you expecting? So I knew it was about gangsters, pretty much, as, and, and instantly in my head I kind of got much more of like a city gangster vibe to it. Like, I thought they okay. were, you know, be in nightclubs and driving up and down the city streets and stuff, and, you know, kind of like uh, the Cotton Club. The Cotton yes, Club. Yes, like the Cotton yeah. Club. But <laughs> And I wasn't exactly looking forward to that. I'd seen, you know, movies like that before. It's not really my... I don't know why I don't really... I'm not really into those types of gangster period pieces so much. I haven't seen that many of them. And this is quite different than that. This all takes place up in the hills where they're actually making the illicit moonshine. It's the first time I've really seen anything explore that. And these three brothers, Shia LaBeouf, Tom Hardy, and Jason Clark, the Bondurant boys, they're even called, like, the mountain people. Like, mm-hmm. it's very clear that these people are... You know, there is sort of the, the town where things happen, but they're sort of like... They are different. Like, they are part of the town, but they are not really part of the town, if that makes sense. Yeah, they are much more hill folk, like, live up in the actual forest in the hills and the countryside, and they come down every so often to sell their moonshine, and I think even might own one of the general stores, or there's something going on there as well. Something, yeah. yeah. And then you get that character, Cricket, who works for them. Cricket Pete. Yeah, and he is strictly one of the mountain boys, right? It seems like he never <laughs> uh, has had a bath or ever gets down from that mountain. Yes. So this movie has a, a just sort of, like, the company you keep, this movie is loaded with stars. Shia sort of plays kind of in ways like the straight man. I think he's good in this movie, but I think he really kind of gets overshadowed because Tom Hardy is just Mm -hmm. like this sort of quiet, confident killer just as an actor. You know what I mean? Like, You're never going to be able to out-act Tom Hardy. (laughs) You have Guy Pearce as this like crazy, ridiculous, over-the-top villain. Mm -hmm. You have Gary Oldman in like a really small but really cool role. It's hard to stack up anybody to Tom Hardy <laughs> when you know, like they're they're basically in within the movie. They're sort of vying for not like necessarily control of the company because it is sort of it seems like it's Tom Hardy's operation. Yeah. But you know, Shia wants his older brother to like respect him and right. think that he can do stuff, and so he's sort of jockeying for position that way. But it's it's hard to do that when like you're going up against one of the greatest actors of our generation. Yeah, he's almost doing that as a actor himself in this movie, jockeying for position of screen time and recognition mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. You're right. Like he's up against a lot of heavyweights in this movie, and I I feel like he kind of gets lost in the mix. And that's not to say he's doing a bad job whatsoever. I just felt like. You know, like you said, with Tom Hardy and Gary... I mean, Tom Hardy is out doing everybody in this movie. I mean, that was a real surprise yeah. for me. I did not expect him to have such a big role and to be so predominant. And he just overshadows this whole film. But, yeah, and even in the small roles with, like, Gary Oldman, he's just in and out of this movie for a couple quick scenes. Um, and actually dealing with Shia, there's just something about the, just the overwhelming, you know, talent here. Even Jessica Chastain, right? Like, he kind of just kind of gets yeah. lost a little bit. And his character, too, is, you know, like his brothers tell him he has no grit, right? <laughs> and I thought that was interesting because as an actor, he's also sort of starting to cut his teeth more. And after this, he'll go the more method route and do more strange and interesting things. And he's breaking away from that, that mainstream, which 
kind of seems I don't want to say it's easy but you know it just it's commercial work you know like it kind of feels like it has no grit to it you know like he hasn't gotten down and dirty as an actor's actor yet well it turns out that he from what I read online started doing a little bit of the method stuff here because he drank real moonshine Hmm. on set to sort of get that look and that swagger that he felt this character needed and apparently he overdrank to the point like by his own admission that between drinking so much and sort of acting aggressively Mia Wasikowska I think that's how you pronounce her last name she sort of plays his love interest or you know not necessarily his love interest for a while just sort of this girl that he has a crush on uh, she was apparently scared of him. <laughs> like wanted to leave the movie. He's done some crazy things so far in the movies that we've seen, but it doesn't seem like there's really like a negative effect. But here, it seemed like you know maybe it was just her, maybe it was he was going a little bit over the top or whatever. But she seemed apparently like she wanted to leave set. So hmm. I guess that's a little bit <laughs> a little bit too method, maybe. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, they. I felt like they had chemistry on screen for the few moments that they get to share. And there's definitely that church scene where he's drunk on moonshine, and it it looks convincing, right? You think he's going to Ralph, like, right on his own feet there when she's washing him and stuff, and it's the run out of church. Uh, And it seems like he's, yeah, if he's getting into that method, maybe he doesn't exactly know the boundaries, right? Like, you know, you just hear stories about people on set going a little too far, and, you know, maybe he hasn't just constrained himself within the uh, realm of method acting yet like he might but we'll see who knows one other thing that I read was that he also got into a fight on set with Tom Hardy Hmm. and so I don't know if that's a result of his drinking or not but also this was shooting at the same time as The Dark Knight Rises and so Tom Hardy is full on Bane buff mode Apparently he was supposed to be, the character was written a lot slimmer, because this is based on another movie, just like The Company You Keep, that was based on a novel, and the novel is, I think, I don't know if it's like a fictionalized version, I don't think it's fictionalized, but Mm. it was written, the novel was written by the grandson of the guy that Shia plays. Yeah. So like this was a real trio of brothers back in the 1920s, the 1930s, who bootlegged. The grandson wrote this novel, which Nick Cave of The Bad Seeds adapted. Uh, apparently, Nick Cave is in this movie somewhere. He gets shot really early on. Maybe he might be actually the guy that Gary Oldman shoots when he sort of like oh, yeah. steals that guy's out, like load of alcohol or whatever. It's a car of alcohol. Tom Hardy was supposed to be a lot slimmer because this is, you know, I guess that's just like what the brother was like, but hmm. uh, he wasn't because he, was he looked like Bane. Uh, so I don't know why you'd ever want to mess with him, but apparently I also read that Shia gained 40 pounds for this role, and I don't think he, like, I, I feel like that's an exaggeration, because he definitely, like, his face looks rounder, it looks sort of a little bit more Al Capone, mm-hmm. but I don't think there's, I don't think there's any way he's 40 pounds heavier in this than he was in other movies around this time. Do you? Like, that no. seems like a lot. No, none, I, I can't see it, but then again, like you said, Tom Hardy is like a Frankenstein in this movie, you know, and Jason Clark's a big dude too, so he is, yeah. he is the runt of the litter here. Maybe it's there and we just can't see it, I mean, but the guy who plays cricket, Dane DeHaan. Dane DeHaan? So, yeah, like he, you know, he is like a twig, right? But Steven yeah. still against Shia, Shia just kind of later on, well, kind of early in the movie when he gets a lot of money, he's wearing big jackets and big suits and you know he's trying to look like a bigger guy than he is anyway so i don't know if the weight gain paid off for me necessarily the other thing i want to point out early on before we really start talking about the movie just when i was looking at the trivia is that apparently before jessica chastain was cast amy adams and scarlett johansson were originally in that role and i can see sort of both of them doing it and then also at other times 
James Franco, Ryan Gosling, and Michael Shannon were originally huh. slated to star yeah. alongside Shia. So it seems like Shia was always involved. It just seems like the people around him were sort of in and out a little bit. I, I wonder, were Shannon and Gosling going to be his brothers? Because I, I actually kind of thought Gosling was just in this movie <laughs> like for some reason. It just seems <laughs> almost like something he would be a part of in a, at this time. But I, I could see Michael Shannon maybe pulling off the Tom Hardy role, maybe. But I just love the way Tom Hardy played it in this film so but yeah that's pretty cool that it was always sort of the shia project that he's been attached to it maybe it was just contractually who knows but like it's just really cool that like yeah from the get-go yeah. he was he was in this like we've been sort of saying uh it's about three brothers who are bootlegging during the prohibition sort of during the it's like depression era they it seems like things are going well yeah Franklin, it seems Virginia, like things are going right? well but then this new guy comes into town played by Guy Pierce, and he's he basically comes in and says, hey, I want a cut of everything that you're making. It seems like all the other bootleggers in town give in to him, but Tom Hardy's like, there's no way we're doing this, and so that's mm-hmm. the conflict of the movie, and so Shia has to sort of impress Tom Hardy by doing a good job, I guess, and sort of, you know, furthering, expanding the business, and eventually he hooks up with Gary Oldman and, like, you know, sells all the stuff to Gary Oldman and all this different, you know, so he's trying to prove himself while there's this conflict going on and on. It's not necessarily, like, it's sort of, in a way, similarly ensembled, I don't know if that's a verb, but similarly like an ensemble to the company you keep, but it's a little bit more focused on, like, the central players as opposed to the company you keep was sort of about, you know, it felt like like everybody in this movie, like, there's as many big stars in this movie maybe as there were in the last one, but it seems like everybody gets more screen time in this. Like, everybody that they're focusing on, we're getting to know a lot about them and a lot about, like, their backstory. Well, I kind of feel like they focused on certain characters. Like, they really focused on two of the three brothers. Like, we don't really get a lot yeah. of Howard, the Jason Clark brother, right? But but we really spent a lot of time with Shia. We spent a lot of time with Tom Hardy and Jessica Chastain, because they're sort of developing this relationship together. So I was a little upset that the brother trio thing isn't fleshed out as much, but what I did like is there's sort of this heightened vibe, only a degree of highly stylized, like, sense to these characters, each of them, like, especially maybe with the Guy Pierce character, right? Like, he is a very eccentric guy, uh, very dapper, wears the bow tie, the part in the middle of his hair, just a creepy, deathly-looking fellow who works for the law, and he, he comes swinging into town. And Tom Hardy, like I mentioned, he's, even before he gets his neck scar, is very stoic and Frankenstein-esque and scary and, and intimidating, and the brothers have, like, this legend that they're almost indestructible about them and stuff so I I, I did like that uh, it kind of helped to even though we didn't get to spend a lot of time with certain characters like the third Clark like Jason Clark his look and his demeanor and everything like everyone else was to a degree that it could tell you a lot just by looking at uh-huh, them uh-huh. You, you know what I'm saying and like I, I feel like it made up for some of the you know maybe some of the shortcomings with the script or with the story by being visually pleasing as well Well, I feel like I want to sort of maybe clarify, because you are right, we don't really necessarily get to know every character the way that we get to know, like, three or four of them, but I feel like even though we're not, like, focusing on them, Jason Clark seems to be in the background of a lot of scenes. It's not like, I'm just sort of (laughs) comparing to the company you keep where, like, a character has his one or two scenes and then disappears from the movie. Like, everybody's sort of around. It's a a much more tight-knit sort of feel to this, and it is like a small town and people are around, and, you know, even though we never really spend time with... Mia's dad, you know, Shia's 
girl's dad, you know, he's sort of this like foreboding preacher type, right? Like he still feels kind of like a background character in that he's in a couple scenes and his presence is felt. So it's yes. not like the company you keep where it's Shia and it's Robert Redford and then they're going around interacting with people for like a couple scenes at a time. It seems like mm-hmm. here everybody is always interacting with everyone, even if they're not on screen, or even if they are on screen, if they're not saying anything. Yes, yeah, in that regard, absolutely. Uh, The company you keep almost felt like perfect stunt casting because of the nature of the script. Like, he was just going to go visit a character and move on, and visit a new character, and move... You know, they had to introduce and exit an important character within a very small amount of time. Really, with this movie, only Gary Oldman kind of disappears, right? Like, he's the only peripheral character, and we need a Gary Oldman in there because, like, we just have to identify him really quickly and get to know him immediately because, right? Like, his presence is going to be there, but he's the only one that isn't sort of always around, you know, but you're right, like, in that regard, like, it's nice to see all these people commingling. I think there's a lot of good chemistry on screen here, you know, and everybody is really into their character, and that's sort of what I was saying about, you know, the heightened vibe of everybody. Like, everyone just feels like they get a great sense of what movie they're in and who they're supposed to be. This is a movie that was produced or or financed or released by Annapurna Pictures, and Annapurna really sort of does not make bad movies. And so, <laughs> you know, whenever you see a movie, like, there's there's two studios, there's them and there's A24, they do a lot of stuff together, they've done, they've done several things together at least. Uh, whenever you see one of their title cards before the movie starts, you know that even if you're not going to necessarily like the movie, it's going to be well-made, and like you're saying, like, everybody knows what they're doing. Like, it's, it's all, like, everybody's sort of on the same page. And I feel like this movie, it's adapted from a book, but it doesn't feel that way. Like, it feels like an organic, and I don't know if that's just Nick Cave, like, the way that he wrote the screenplay, like, if he sort of took more liberties, but it feels like we're not missing out on story. Like, there's more that we could have learned about characters, of course, but, I mean, in every movie, even movies that are not adapted from something, there's always going to be possibly characters you want to learn more about. So I think that this one, as opposed to a lot of the other novelizations or the adaptations of novels that we've seen, you know, these last two movies, they, they've been pretty good in terms of... It's a nice little run for Shia. You know, he's more successful, mm-hmm. it seems like, than Cage or Keanu are in that realm. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about that watching this, too. And and I'm not sure if it's because, like you mentioned, this, this book might have been based on real events, you know, or at least the author... Uh, was inspired by his family history, you know, so I wonder if just that ingredient made it more adaptable in some way where they could maybe stray from the book but draw from the real life differently or more, or, or I don't know, it just, it definitely feels like a good adaptation without even having read the book or anything just because the movie works really well as a movie, you know, it doesn't feel bogged down, it doesn't feel overloaded or overstuffed to the degree where you're like, um, what's going on? I'm confused or anything, or who's this all of a sudden? And everything feels like it needs to be there, right? And even the end, I would say the ending feels most like part of an adaptation just because of sort of how quickly things wrap up and the amount of information yeah, we, get, yeah, yeah. we get, it right? Like, so maybe the end. But then in that regard, too, the, it feels more like a slice of the boys' lives, right? right? Like, I almost feel like we could get a prequel or a sequel and get the further adventures of these brothers, in a way. Like a series. Like, you almost... Yeah, like, you, you want that ending... Are you talking about the very end where, like, they're all around the dinner table? Like, that scene? Well, yeah, pretty much just from then to the very end when okay. Tom Hardy does his little jig. Uh, because, like, it feels like... I mean, you, you need some kind of wrap-up because everybody's just sort of, like... 
bleeding out on that bridge, sort of. And you sort of, you sort of need to know who survives. <laughs> so you need to kind of wrap up. But I do feel like I guess like the because the, the movie is about the brothers, but it's also about like this era. And so I think that even though it is sort of like a fast forward of that, I think it works, and it does sort of feel maybe a little bit like an adaptation, like you were saying. But at the same time, it's like the movie. You know, Nick Cave and the director are like, hey, like, this is sort of the story we want to tell, but, like, the story that we actually want to tell has been told. So we're just going to move on, like, here's your resolution, <laughs> here's what happens to these guys you've grown attached to over the last two hours, and we're just going to get on. Like, cool, like, th- thanks for coming. Like, here's sort of a happy ending for most things, and then a little bit of a sad ending, because don't go walking on frozen lakes, apparently, because you're going to die of pneumonia. <laughs> Especially drunk on your own moonshine. Yeah. But, uh... It's a nice epilogue, you know. I think what ends up helping it is that sort of in the beginning, middle, and end, we get a brief voiceover from Shia. Which I like a lot, yeah. Yeah, and it's like probably, you know, this is a great use of voiceover because he's telling you things that you're not seeing on screen. Like in the beginning, he's talking about how the fever took his parents and almost took Tom Hardy, but he survived somehow. And you don't see him sick in the bed. You just see Tom Hardy loading the truck of moonshine, right? And and they use voiceover very well in that regard. My brother Forrest once said, nothing can kill us. We can't never die. Reason being that in the Great War, my eldest brother Howard saw his entire battalion drown in the sea. Every last one. He was the only survivor. And Forrest, well, that same year, Spanish lady flu hit Franklin. Damn near wiped out the entire state. Got Ma and Pa and Forrest, but against all the odds, he somehow managed to fight it off. So you can see why Forrest felt that way. What kind of throws me at the at the end a little bit is they're kind of. Like, the voiceover's back, and it's okay and everything, but, like, he's talking about kind of what we're seeing. He's almost like we all got together and had wives and kids and had dinner together, and then that's what we're seeing. So it just kind of threw me a little bit and um, felt like an addition, you know, like you said, like, oh, really, we wanted to tell the story about these brothers, but we kind of got caught up in this whole moonshine, white lightning, Smokey and the Bandit kind of thing happening for a while. Well, I feel like you kind of need to sort of describe what's on screen, because otherwise it might seem like a fever dream kind of but i'm okay with that i'm kind of good with that right because you like you said like they're all bleeding out on this bridge so make it maybe a little more ambiguous i think the movie earns it if they wanted to go there and it might have just elevated it for me from like a really good movie to maybe one that i would consider to be like super great i feel like if it wasn't an adaptation you could be a little bit more ambiguous but the fact that they probably all survived in real life that shootout or you know whatever real life Mm -hmm. equivalent of the shootout was because i'm sure it wasn't like that crazy although maybe it was i feel like they (laughs) you sort of can't take like artistic (laughs) ambiguous liberties with the ending because if the three brothers survive in real life and then you sort of Posit at the end of the movie that like oh maybe two of them are dead maybe Jason Clark's there just like with his wife or maybe you know maybe he in the really dark universe like killed himself because the brothers died you know what I mean like who knows <laughs> like you know I, I feel yeah. like you sort of need to be a little bit more specific and like this is what happened just because it is based on real life yeah I know I understand that it's like it's still a commercial film and you know if maybe if this was a foreign art film I'd get that I'm just postulating though it still works for me is like the good thing you know like the movie totally earns what Whatever ending it's going to give you, in my opinion, like this movie is really well made, and again, I just can't. I, I mean, I know we're doing shy here, but 
I want to do Tom Hardy too. Like I want to do all his movies as well at some point, if possible, because like he just reminds me like why I love him as an actor. Like he's just so good in this. So this movie apparently had a budget of like twenty six million dollars, and it made worldwide fifty three. So I guess it was a <laughs> hit. It just doesn't seem like you were saying like it's a commercial movie. It is, but it's also it also feels like sort of like we were talking about a couple episodes ago with this and the company you keep, but there's sort of these like mid-level, because I feel like this wasn't in, although I guess to make that much money, you're probably in a lot of theaters and you do have a lot of stars in it. I almost wonder if, and this is, I'm going out on a long limb here, but I almost wonder if it, partially due to the subject matter. Like, people don't like to be reminded that alcohol was illegal once, yeah. like, constitution- constitutionally. Uh, so that turns a lot of people off. Uh, the whole idea of just American history of violence between the law and people just trying to survive, right? Like, doing what they need to, to survive. Like, there's just a sordid history of, in America, and this is some heavy, you know, white-on-white violence as well, and it's just a... It's a dark time, and I wonder if that's what kept people away from it. Like, it, it's a commercially made film, it, it seems, but it's it's not, like, um, extremely sort of... I don't feel like it's extremely broadly accessible, yep. right? Like, I, you know, like, I feel like it's a genre pick, and, you know, you have to kind of be into the ultraviolence we're going to get and, and the subject matter to like it. Because, I mean, there is one point in the movie where a guy almost decapitates Tom Hardy and we sort of see the whole thing like we see the knife like you know mm. like like it seems like a very blunt knife just sort of yeah. gashing through his throat and so I mean that's another example of why he's indestructible or invincible because he legend has it that he walked 20 miles to the hospital but we find out later that Jessica Chastain drove him I feel like if you stumbled across this movie and didn't know like you know maybe you're a girl with a crush on Tom Hardy or Shia or something and you're like oh like let me check out this movie you're like <laughs> oh my god like you know for the most part like there is there are a couple love stories there are and there's not violence really throughout like I think it's sort of you know contained bursts of violence but the movie's also such that like when we need to show violence like we're not going to sugarcoat we're going to show you what happened because this is based on real life you know this kind of stuff or some version of this happened and we don't want to downplay the significance or the the importance or the history of it all and i was pretty surprised that how shocking the violence was like like you said there's not a whole lot of it and but it does come in these bursts that are almost like jump scares in a weird way um that just caught me off guard like early on before the title screen they're delivering a batch of moonshine to the funeral of the the black people's funeral and when they come out you know this group of white guys is like you know what are you selling to them for and tom hardy just starts talking to one guy and bam like knocks him out with brass knuckles yep and they show in slow motion the blood drip off it's very horror show and the scene when he gets his throat slit like he you know they jump up from behind the car and grab his hands and the other guy jumps up from behind you know Mm -hmm. and it's very much like um like a scary movie in those in those parts too so it's weird how well it worked but it's also weird also how the violence felt like we were jumping genres for a second. It, it was it was cool. I'd never experienced it quite like that. Like Again, it gets back to my expectations where this is going to be uh, like untouchables. I thought this was going to take place in Chicago or in a major city and they were going to be running, you know, running from the law and stuff. And, and what, what just is, it's just about the setting that being in the woods and out in the desolation and you know out in the middle of nowhere no one knows this is going on but it is going on like there's just something about the setting to me that was so new like I hadn't seen before that really helped me re-engage anytime I was sort of falling out of 
uh, interest. So, like, for instance, seeing their stills, right, their moonshine still operation and seeing that sort of grow. And, and Cricket has turned his house into a moonshine still yep. so that when he turns the faucet on, the moonshine comes out. And then later on, you see their enormous operation where they made these gigantic barrels. They're making like $1,000 a week from it. So, like, all that was very new to me and interesting, and I hadn't seen any of that before. And you won't get that in a traditional gangster film. And this is more of like a outlaw movie or something. It is sort of, it's different from movies like The Untouchables, but we're also sort of like adjacent. Like, I feel like, because I mean, Jessica Chastain is a dancer from Chicago, right? And she comes down Mm -hmm. and it feels like, maybe it doesn't even feel like, maybe it actually happened that Guy Pierce came in from Chicago because they're like, this isn't Chicago, you can't just shoot him here. It's, it's this weird movie that like is different, but it's also, it's like taking place basically next door to The Untouchables. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's you know, it's, there's that one scene in The Untouchables where they like, they go to Canada to, to exchange the, you know what I mean? Like that's the whole, like yeah. there's that whole thing there. And I feel like that just as easily could have been down in the hills of Virginia. You know, like, it's sort of, like, mm-hmm. instead of going north, you go a little bit southeast. Like, it's it's all... It's like a shared... Yeah, that shared universe. <laughs> it's it's, some, it's somehow, like, similar and different, like, in, in, like, the same... You know, it's it's weird. But, but, like, in a good way. Like, not weird in a bad mm-hmm. way. Weird in, like, a... Right. Pivoted a little bit. Yeah, it's like this nice companion piece to those types of gangster films, you know? Like, we get Gary Oldman showing up, and he's definitely, like, the Bugsy or, you know, or someone like that. And he's the guy, you know, he would be, like, um, you know, like a kingpin or something, and, and he's this, he's figured out he could get the good stuff right from the source, straight from the tap. So you're right, yeah. It is. It, it, it works as a nice companion piece to those big city gangster movies. You could watch that, and then you could watch this, and you could kind of get more of a complete picture. Yeah. So Shia in this movie, so bringing it back to Shia specifically, what's kind of interesting about his character, and I guess, I mean, it's hard to really, it's not like a criticism of the movie, because I guess it's sort of more like what the brothers were like in real life to an extent, at least. But it's kind of amazing how little Shia's character seems to have learned from Tom Hardy over the years. And he just seems like completely unprepared to do just about anything. Like when they go drop off the moonshine at the very beginning, when they get, you know, when Tom Hardy knocks that guy out, like Shia is so naive that he's like looking in the window, just like watching what's happening instead of even like remotely standing guard. And it seems like he just constantly keeps messing up. I I think it says a lot about him and a lot about his character and the portrayal because like, if you're even, like, halfway paying attention to Tom Hardy, you should be, like, way better at doing what you're doing than, than actually he is. Yeah, I feel like the Jason Clark character has listened to Tom Hardy, you know, very well, right? He's just sort of stayed silent and observed, and when needed to, he will, you know, do what he has to, kick someone's ass, you know, cut someone's balls off, whatever it takes, right? And, yeah, Shia becomes sort of desperate to prove himself, and... I wrote at one point, like, everything he does is bad, right? Like, he always tries to do something good, and it leads to something bad, in a way. Um, Like, he gets, like, when they steal his brother's car and they go to try and sell their stuff to Gary Oldman, like, they forget to gas up the car. Like, that's a minor thing, but it's telling, because things sort of build up to he wants to impress his girlfriend, so he leads that, he leads her to the moonshine stills and ends up leading the cops to the still. You know, he doesn't even consider that he might be being watched or anything. So it's like this combination of uneducated and desperate to prove himself and not listening to, you know, his brother. And his brother even says to him, you know, look what 
I am. Look at me. Like, if do you really want to become me? Because he's like, if you do, then you can stop listening to me and it'll happen. Otherwise, you can, like, listen to me and we can, you know, try and do this together instead of against each other or something. Right. And I feel like even when Shia actually does something that could or should impress Tom Hardy, it's so, not like unconventional thinking, but like against the way that Tom Hardy would do it. You know, when he goes in town, just sort of flies off the handle or, you know... Well, I guess the other the other time he goes, uh, when he... <laughs> They described Shia at one point as, like, he, he flew off half-cocked or whatever to go kill Guy Pierce, but, like, this time, like, he, he sort of just, like, several times in this movie, he just, like, leaves, like, in a, like a, in a huff to go do something. Yeah. At the time when he goes and he sells all the liquor to Gary Oldman, you know, he just, it's not the way that Tom, like, I feel like Tom Hardy doesn't really want to take chances, or at least minimize the risks that he has to take, because obviously that's going to lead to your survival and help you become as close to invincible as possible, but, you know, Shia just goes and does this great thing and gets twice as much money as Tom Hardy could have made and basically unloads all their stock in one fell swoop and Tom Hardy's like I don't like I don't even know what to do with this because like this is so far removed that like even when Shia like does something that should be kind of impressive it's it's not in a weird way because it's like it's too radical like it goes from being like too inexperienced to somehow like too experienced, but, like, on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, it's interesting, is because he's, like, we're not, he's, like, we're not those gangsters, right? He's, like, that isn't our life. Like, we're out here in the country. Like, we have a role to play, and you're not playing your role. He's, like, if you want to play gangster, go to the city. Do that, fine. But don't do that around here, because think we have a certain way of doing things, and it's working really well. And on top of that, we got Guy Pierce now, this dickhead who's fucking looking to kill us. Like, he doesn't give a shit. He will just, like, murder your friend, you know, to get to you, which he ends up doing. You know, he ends up killing Cricket with his bare hands just to, you know, spite the brothers and everything. And so, yeah, I just feel like they're on two different pages. You know, they they see the ends, but they have different means of getting there. And and what else is kind of interesting about that is early on, Tom Hardy was mentioning something to the guy before he punches him in the face with the brass knuckles about why he sells the, to the black people. And he's like, you know, times are changing or something like you can't stop progress. And yet the rest of the movie, he's trying to sort of stop progress or he can't see the bigger picture or at least he's not even willing to consider it. I don't know if he has the mental capacity to even do that just because like he's so set in his ways and they got such a good thing going for so long. Absolutely. But he does end up kind of conceding a little bit, right? Like they end up making the bigger stills, they end up selling a lot to Gary Oldman and they end up making tons and tons of money. And it doesn't make him any happier. He still sits <laughs> on a cot in a room covered with newspapers, but Shia seems to be, you know, buying new cars, buying new clothes, all kinds of things. It seems like the the success that Shia has selling all that liquor to Gary Oldman is like what he needs, like the ticket to finally impress Bertha. Like he goes and buys a new car, he goes and buys a new suit, a new coat. He basically is in such a rush to go impress her that he doesn't even take the price tag off his coat. Like it was like this one scoop is like enough to sort of bring him, I don't know, like validation in both his brother's eyes and this girl's eyes. And like, you know, you, you really sort of did one thing. I know you sort of set things up for the future, you know, if you want to keep selling to this guy, but, like, it seems like this, he's, he's so, he's, he's almost too excited. Even though it, it all kind of works out, in a way, right? Like, it just seems like mm-hmm. he's just so happy about this one thing he did that it's like, oh, I'm just set for life in, like, all respects. Yeah, that was kind of one strange thing about the love story is I definitely didn't think they were going to end up together. Like, it didn't have the sense that they were going to get together at the end, which was kind of 
weird. Like, I just had this feeling something really bad was going to happen between them. Yeah, you're right. He's, like, never present, you know? He's just always thinking about what's next and what's next. And I think what really kind of ends up impressing her is the fact that he is kind of like a gangster boy. Like, she's pretty young and naive herself, you know? Like, she's so, like, super religious and, you know, her father's got the beard. But, like, I just think that she ends up actually being very fascinated and enamored by the danger of his lifestyle uh, as opposed to, I feel like he is trying to show that I can provide for you. Right, so he's he's kind of to me he's coming off as like, look, I can be a husband, I can provide, I'll I'll, I'll give you protection, and she's kind of like, ooh, this guy's a bad boy, like he's the <laughs> furthest thing that my father wants me to be with. I want him because even at the very end, right, like the way, like sort of the only way that the movie justifies them getting together is that she always had a little bit of a rebellious streak in her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they just add that in the voiceover, I think, because because that's like the most unbelievable part about the whole movie is that like they would ever get together, sort of, right? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely thought that Guy Pierce was going to be responsible for her death instead of Cricket's death. Like, I was definitely thinking once once they were caught together in that little scene, I thought for sure he was going to take both of them and do something. But yeah, she ends up surviving. I feel like she survives only because she's a girl, right? Because they're like, oh, like, let's get you home. Like, you're obviously not mm-hmm. supposed to be mixed up in all this. Yeah. Like, like, let's, like, come on, sweetheart. Like, let me hold your hand and get <laughs> you out of here. Meanwhile, you know, she's probably as competent, if not more so, than Cricket, who's, you know, debilitated by rickets and, you know, this, like you were saying, like, thin as a twig and just, she was very much clean of the situation. He was inherently guilty, but neither of them are really much to be, like... He's a victim and she's not innocent, which is what makes the scene play a little strange that she goes free and he ends up dying, right? Like, there's just that weird bias there between, you know, oh, she's a lady and it's the 30s. She can't... And she's, like, not even 18. There's no way she could be smart enough or involved in any way. Clearly, Cricket has kidnapped her for some reason, you know, and dragged her out here into the woods or something. And yet you get the sense from her character that she's super quick and really smart and almost feels like, at one point, I'm like, oh, she wants to, like, take over the operation and feels like she could double their interest or something. Because, like, even, like, the one when Shia gives her the dress, she's like, where would I wear this? And and he's just like, yeah. I don't know, like, I'll just bring you places. She's like, oh, okay. Then, like, she, like, puts it on. She, like, she, all she needs, it feels like, is one person to give her, like, validation one time. And she's like, oh, right, like, I don't have to follow my father's footsteps. I don't have to bathe gross dudes' feet in church for some reason. <laughs> Getting closer to Jesus, I guess. You know, I can be my own person, and I can sort of fall in love with the kind of man that I want to fall in love with and live the kind of lifestyle that I want to live and you know poor Cricket just like I'm just trying to make the best of a bad situation like she, mm. it's like you know he's forced into that life but she wants to be I don't know like in in a weird way she's almost more guilty than he is yeah definitely in the eyes of the lord right <laughs> 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 yeah absolutely so I guess maybe the one the one scene um, we haven't talked about that really it's very it's the very first thing we see and it's the three little boys uh, around us pig and they're telling uh, yeah yeah, young, yeah they're telling young Shia to shoot the pig and he won't do it so one of the other brothers takes the gun and shoots him I didn't really know what was why that was sort of thrown in there at the very beginning but then as the movie goes on it, it's pretty apparent you know it makes more sense and at the end I thought it you know, actually paid off. I, I was reminded of the very first shot of the movie very far towards the end when they're on the bridge and, and Shia finally shoots the guy Pierce character like he has shot the pig. You know, that's the way I, I saw it. And, and, and I thought that was kind of kind of interesting that 
that it tied that together. The end of the movie is sort of like a big confrontation between the bad guys, like the bad guys who are our heroes, really, you know, Shia and Tom mm-hmm. Hardy and everybody, and the cops, and it's sort of a little bit like the Devil's Rejects, right? Like they're just like a car hurtling down the road to this like <laughs> yeah. roadblock of cops. Uh, no Freebird playing in this movie, unfortunately. Shia, I guess, I guess all it really took is just like that, like he just needed something to happen and it was the death of Cricket to sort of flick that switch in his mind and be like, this is going to sound sort of maybe bad, but like, I'm ready to be a man now. You know what I mean? Like, I'm ready to avenge yeah. my dead brother or my dead friend. You know, basically like a brother, like not an actual blood brother, but like as close to him as this brother's probably, you know, if not even closer. Uh, I'm ready to avenge dead Cricket Pete, and I have all this rage and everything, like all these emotions bottled up inside of me, and all I want to do is kill this one guy, kill Charlie Rakes, kill Guy Pierce. Yeah, I I got the same reading exactly. Like he had this epiphany when Cricket died because, like you said, I do feel like he was close closer to him than his brothers. Like it was his real brother. They were the same age. They hung out all the time. It's his only friend. Uh, and after that funeral, you know, he, he, there's that scene where the sheriff comes and he's like, "I need to talk to your brother." He's like, "You talk to me now. You talk to me now." You know, and he's like, finally accepted what it takes to be part of the gang for real. And he's realized that. Life isn't fun in games anymore. Like, there's such a thing as real loss, you know, and consequence, and consequence because of his actions. And he's got to be more careful and smarter now. So, yeah, there's definitely that shift. And I think Shia plays it really well, too, because most of the movie he has been jovial or kind of just jokey and stuff and from now on he is just pissed and it reads really well I think because the whole movie it's sort of you know he's either bailed out of trouble by his brother or things are going so well that there's not really trouble around like it seems that until Guy Pierce shows up the status quo is sort of set where they're not necessarily leading the town but they're like one of the major if not the major bootleggers so mm-hmm. there's nobody that's really going to challenge them because it seems like everybody's like content with the dime that they're making. When there is trouble, Tom Hardy bails him out, and then he finds this girl that he likes, and things, there's a few bumps, but, like, nothing really, like, he, he sort of lives, like, a blessed life, kind of, mm-hmm. you know, as as much as one can when you're in this life of crime and this life of, you know, bootlegging and whatever, and then it's when, sort of, he gets his wake-up call that, you know, he's ready to, or he realizes that, like, not everything, like, you know, people around him have been dealing with, like, basically, he kind of realizes, I guess, like, what Tom Hardy's kind of been going through. Like, there's no one really looking out for him. Like, he's got to look out for himself and, you know, take things into his own hands. Yeah, he's definitely been, like, living the sheltered life as much as one can back then, I suppose. And I wonder if, to a degree, you know, they're his brothers are slightly responsible because they have set up this wall around him in a way to the point where like he doesn't have to look out for himself right and there's even that and and the brothers have like this certain reputation about them that i feel once shia gets involved in the family business he kind of starts damaging a little bit and so that's not helping like there's that scene where they go to chicago to unload the lot but they at first aren't dealing with gary oldman they're about to get buried alive by his henchmen and then shia well they're not gonna get buried alive they're gonna get like shot and then buried like okay yeah so they're gonna get shot first executed okay and shia sort of saves them by using his real name you know and so it's like this weird thing about reputation and stuff and you have to earn your rep and it's like shia hadn't earned his reputation but he's been trying to walk in those certain the shoes of his brother but by the end of the movie i feel like those shoes fit and he's walking they're all side by side so that's a weird scene where he's about to die because he's simultaneously not 
mature enough to handle the situation himself, but mature enough or smart enough to know what to say to sort of like fix the situation. Like yeah. he was he was dumb enough to get into trouble, but smart enough to get out of trouble, like in a way. And that's mm. kind of like I guess what flips the switch. Like it's sort of a like that's kind of a turning point, I guess, for him, right? Yeah, and it's it's another example I think of his brothers saving his ass. They're not even there. Right, right, but yep. their specter is present, and you know Gary Oldman knows better than to start a blood feud, as he says. Right, so I don't know if at that point it occurs to him, but definitely I think it comes back to being smart enough not to get into those situations ever again. You know, I think he definitely has learned from his mistakes at the end of the movie. Definitely, definitely. I think that's all I have to say about Lawless. Is there anything else that you wanted to bring up that we haven't talked about yet? Uh, no, not so much. Uh, we, we didn't really talk about Guy Pierce too much, but like he is definitely another uh, <laughs> reason to watch this movie. What he's doing here is pretty great. Like, he's making very interesting choices. I haven't quite seen... A char- I mean, maybe he seems like he kind of steps out of uh, Boardwalk Empire, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit, right? Like, that's cool. Like, I haven't really seen a character like him... Like it's it's interesting his contrast between the city life and the country life. So he's like this presence of the city invading the country. I thought that was cool. Um, I also, you know, aside from like a Burt Reynolds movie uh, or something, I haven't really seen any movies about bootlegging. You know, White Lightning with Burt Reynolds takes place in like the seventies or something. It's not even like this time period. You know, he's driving. Uh, Corvette or something. I enjoyed it. I would watch more movies about bootlegging. It didn't only take place in Virginia. <laughs> it was all across the country. And, I, and there's just something interesting, too, about this time period uh, that I enjoyed. Uh, and yeah, it just it was an unex- unexpected surprise for me, and I, I did enjoy it. I think we have a pretty good track record. Like, aside from Nymphomaniac, which is sort of, you're either all in or you're all out, I think we're, we're pretty much, the other four movies we've done so far, I think they're all recommends on some level, mm-hmm. one to one extent or another. Yeah, yeah. Two of the next three movies we're doing are Transformers, so I think that that movie, <laughs> or that streak is going to stop. But I mean, we'll see. I mean, maybe I haven't seen Transformers. Like, I don't even know if I've seen the third Transformers all the way through. I'm mm. pretty sure I saw it at midnight in the theater and I fell asleep. So there's probably, like, there's either going to be large chunks of the movie that I don't remember at all, or everything is going to seem completely normal because everything is sort of the same. You know what I mean? Like, it's either... Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, either, I'm not going to be surprised either way, like, whether there's new stuff or everything feels <laughs> like I've seen it before. But we will see, yeah. and we're going to do, in the order that he did them, the next movie we're doing is Transformers 3. We're not going to do Transformers 1 first. We're going to do... Like, right. What's the third one called? Dark of the Moon? Oh, uh, Sure. <laughs> yeah, Dark I, I don't. Okay, I knew it had something to do with the Apollo missions. I think the the Transformer movies will be fun, just in that there's definitely things to talk about with all of them, right? Like there's something was going on during the making of each of these movies, and I think there's some interesting behind the scenes to some of them. And the first Transformers was the first uh, time I went to a, a midnight screening, so <laughs> some stories about that as well uh, when we get to it. But bring on the cacophony. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Now, Megan Fox is not in Transformers 3, right? It's the Rosie hunting Whiteley or whatever, Whiteley Huntington or... Yes, yeah, and I think the, Kelsey the Victoria Grammer. model. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think. I'm not sure. There was a fourth. I get three and four confused. I know Wahlberg's in Fours four. Fours with but... Wahlberg and TJ Miller and the girl from Bates Motel. Okay, 
All right. And that's with the dinosaurs. Oh, okay. I've seen most of three. I've seen all of one and two, so here we go. We will be there tomorrow. When you're, if you're listening to this, the day it comes out, Transformers Dark of the Moon comes out tomorrow, so come back for that, because all three of these movies, are there, they're combined seven and a half hours, so if we thought Nymphomaniac was long, <laughs> I mean, Shy has done a few things that are just like, they're real endurance tests. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say epic, but I think endurance test is more appropriate. Come back tomorrow and see if we're still... If You know, if this is the last episode of all his movies, I guess we just couldn't get through Transformers. So, I mean, <laughs> that's, you know, rest in peace. So, for all things, all his movies, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub. Find out the past episodes we've done, what's coming next, other podcasts on the network, all sorts of fun stuff at those two places. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we'll see you next time on All His Movies. I've got an elastic.